This is Designing the Revolution. I've decided to put in three um, videos that I recently did into this podcast series. There is going to be uh, one on lawyers, one on the media and one on economists. And I just want to mention why I'm doing this before you hear the recording. It's partially because we've made quite a lot of progress, I think, in terms of the groundswell of preparing for this revolutionary process, uh, designing actions, designing organisation, uh, mobilisation and what have you. So what I thought was we might just return to what are we trying to do here? Why is it that the liberal class, the conventional elites, the people who are in charge, are simply not going to adapt to the climate crisis, the ecological crisis and all the rest of it in time. So it's a bit of a reversion to the original argument, just to refresh ourselves before we get on to the heart of this podcast series, which is the revolution itself and how to design the actual, the actual battle, as you might say. So I hope you enjoy these and, you know, they're... They're not pretending to be the last word on the matter, but you'll probably find if you listen to all three um, chapters, there's a reminder of how fact basically the situation is at the present time. And these guys are not going to sort it out. We're going to have to sort it out. And so you'll be primed, as you might say, for the main act that follows on. Thanks very much. Hi, this is the third of free videos looking at the dynamics between reformist orientations and revolutionary orientations. The first two videos, if you haven't seen them yet, you should have a look at, which is the first one's about law, lawyers and judges. Second one's about the media, uh, journalism. And in this final video, I'm going to look at economics. And the general thesis of these three videos is that the reformist orientation in the context of the emergency we face actually makes the coming level of disruption and revolution worse. Makes it, um, they're shooting themselves in the foot <laughs> by continuing uh, to to pursue a reformist logic. And the reason I'm saying this is not because I'm being ideological necessarily. Um, it's because of the nature of the system that we work in. So this video was sort of inspired, as you might say, by reading The Economist. <laughs> So The Economist magazine, I'm sure you probably know it, is its self-understanding is they're realist and they have a really solid methodologies, extremely intelligent, they're people of the world. They focus on increasing wealth and prosperity and liberal democracy and all the rest of it. And the article I read was went along the lines of the last thing the last thing we want is for countries to start 
growing all or most of their own food again. What we need to do is maintain high level of specialization uh, between countries that produce food and countries that produce goods and they should trade. And this is uh, going to promote economic growth and stability and more people have more food to eat. Okay, so there's a theory behind this, which is, I think, classically speaking, it's called the theory of natural advantage. And as with the other two videos, what economists do, similar to lawyers and people in the media, is they have a system that they look at. And within that system, it makes irrefutable sense. And it's only when you go out of that system that it doesn't. So I'm going to show you the logic of this sort of specialization argument. So here, here we go. Here's our little first graphic. Graphic. Visual aid. Okay. So these are countries. This is country A. This is country B. Um, in the first instance, country A spends 50% of its resources, producing goods, it produces 500 units of them. It produced the rest of its resources go on producing food and it produces 300 units of food. Then you've got country B, 50% of its resources go on goods, doesn't produce as many, 300. 50% of its resources goes on food, produces 500 units of food. So. Obviously, it's simplistic, but the general principle is the economists come along and they say, look, 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 this isn't very sensible. Obviously, country A should produce all the goods. If it produces 100% of the goods, then it's two lots of 500. It's going to produce 1,000 units of goods. And look, the other country is better at producing food. They should produce, you know, 100% of their resources going to food. And so that's two lots of 500, that's a 1,000, okay? And the economist will go, look, this is the total production of all the food and goods, 1,600, but if people specialise, the total aggregate production is 2,000. So this is a model, obviously, as I said, it's super simplistic. Um, but the flaw in the analysis, of course, is that food has a unique metaphysical characteristic, a foundational characteristic, and that is humans die within 40 to 60 days if they don't eat food. So that's totally different to computers. If you don't have, you know, if, if the supply of computers to this country disappears, everyone will be pissed off, but people won't be starving, they won't be dying. Now, most of the time, of course, this isn't a big deal <laughs> because the economist assumes that there's no, going to be no disruption in food production. And so you've got countries like Egypt. I've just looked this up. So Egypt's got 110 million people it's rapidly going growing population but it only produces 40 45 percent of its wheat 
So approximately 60% of the time, um, or maybe 60 million people, rely on wheat imports. So they're relying on this country to produce the food. Okay, so so let's say there's a 1% chance that there's going to be massive food growing disruption, which might be before the climate crisis era. The Economist is fine. They, they win the argument. But let's say, for the sake of argument, there's a 20% chance each year of major food disruption. So the Economist is still going to be arguing, like they are at the moment, that people should continue to uh, massively specialise. Each country should specialise in what it's good at. But if those countries know that in within a decade it's going to be a 50% chance of massive food disruption, they're in what's called a, a prisoner's dilemma, game theory situation. What that means is, if you think about it, a country might want to jump ship. It might want to go, oh, Actually, we're going to produce a lot more of our food. And then that will have a cascading effect because everyone else will start going, we, we want to grow more of our own food. And the economist will be going, no, 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 this is terrible, this is terrible. No, you know, this is food nationalism and all the rest of it. So they, they stop. They put pressure on. They use various mechanisms to stop countries. Um, growing more of their own food. But what that means is, is when in a decade's time it's 50% chance of food disruption, the whole world is massively unprepared. And so when the shit hits the fan, as you might say, the system is, cannot adapt and even more people starve and there's even more social breakdown and there's even more revolutionary activity. Okay, so I'm going to use one or two other examples, but what I'm hoping to, sh to say here is that what The Economist is doing is, is it's not recognising that there's a delayed effect so we've discussed this on other videos. We're at 1.5 degrees of global warming, effectively in the next three to five years, let's say. But we also know that 1.5 degrees is locked in. Not absolutely, but that's arguably the main scenario due to global dimming, carbon lag, Arctic melt, water vapor, the list goes on. Um, but because the Economist hasn't seen that, or at least can't grasp it. And because it's got this certainty fetish, like we don't know for certain, then they carry on with this policy, which actually is counterproductive, even to their own way of seeing the world. 
and we'll talk about this a bit more in a bit and I've talked about it before obviously everyone in the Economist magazine is of the same opinion and human beings being what they are there's herding effects and everyone everyone toes the party line but the, the main thing that's happening is people can't see outside that box of natural specialization they can't see that food is fundamentally different to everything else. They can't see that there's this massive crisis which is now locked in, in the same way as the journalists count and, and the lawyers. All right, so let's just take another little look at this problem from another, another simple visual aid. <laughs> okay, so you're probably familiar with this, but just to remind ourselves, so here's component X, okay? And in this country, they're making four different things. Product A, product B, product C, product D. Traditionally, they'd, in, they'd invest, they'd import some of this component X to produce product A. But X in with product B, C and D, they got X from the, the, their own country. So it was more secure. So when the neoliberal period came along, the economists would be arguing, look, it's cheaper to import this component. So you import it to A, B, C and D. So again, the logic is that this makes everyone wealthier and um, through specialization. But obviously you can see the problem, which is as and even when X isn't available, then there's a massive effect that you can't actually produce lots of these goods. Well, in the good old days, if X suddenly disappeared here, you wouldn't have product A, but B, C and D would, would be fine. So you might call this like poorer but more resilient and richer but more vulnerable. So it's not, it's not like this is better than this or this, you know. The issue is contextual, which is if there's a structural threat to the maintenance of this, then obviously you should revert to that. But again, there's this lag effect. So you have these small shocks to the system. I think a famous example over the last year has been semiconductors from Taiwan. So um, there's been a drought. The production of semiconductors apparently requires loads of water. There's a massive drought, you know, thousand year drought. Suddenly Everyone's getting their semiconductors from Taiwan. I don't know what the percentage of, but it's all very specialized. And then there's massive knock-on effects in terms of the supply lines um, in Western countries. So again, like we've got, you know, the inability to see that the viability of this is decreasing exponentially. It's locked in. Um, you don't believe it's locked in because the supply of this, you know, at the moment, the empirics look certain. There's 
a few little shocks like Taiwan, but it's looking basically fine. You've got the herding effect and people's inability to see outside this box. All right, so, so the third example is, is Greece. So I read a book about the um, crisis in Greece due to austerity and what have you. So in conventional economics, and obviously I'm simplifying again because I just want to make a structural point, okay? So the theory is, is um, you take on debt and with that money, you can invest that in production and you can increase people's incomes, the income of a country. And that produces growth, which gives more credibility. So then you can have more debt, which creates more growth, which produces more income, and you've got this virtuous circle. So all well and good. And then what happens is there's an external um, shock to the system and the debt payments become greater than the amount of income that a country is, is able to produce. So then the, the positive feedback loop is negative. So you've got a lot of debt that you owe, so you can't produce so much, you're getting less cash, you can't produce so much, you haven't got so much money, so you can't pay your debt off, so the interest goes up, so people won't lend you any more money because you don't look like you're viable, so you've got even less money and you get this cascade going down, and that was classically seen in the 1930s. Now, the reason why Greece was sort of interested interesting when I read about it was the usual response to this is you put more cash into the system so there's this thing called quantitative easing and the basic Keynesian hypothesis which is put more cash in you know print money in other words and people will uh, institutions and people that have more money they'll spend more money, that will make the companies stay in business, they'll produce more goods, more money will be produced, the debts can be paid off, maybe some of the debts can be written off and, and you start to recover. So the interesting thing about Greece was that didn't happen, to cut a long story short, um, because the injections of cash could only be authorised via the Eurozone, by the countries that were in the Euro. And they insisted on this extreme austerity scenario because they wanted to protect their own financial viability and there's various dark dealings around it. But the fundamental point is this, is in Greece, the cash was not available to um, maintain the economy and... Um, reverse that downward spiral. So you had 25% reduction in, in the gross national product within a year or two. It's off the scale bad. So the moral of the tale, of course, is, you know, either have your own currency so you can print your own money or be part of the euro, which is going to be sensible. <laughs> Let's put it like that. Um, 
Okay, so if, if we look at the production of goods in an economy, again, to simplify somewhat, we can say there's material, you need materials, you need labour and you need cash. And what we've just established is if there's no cash, then you can't put labour and materials together because you haven't got enough to pay for them. And the solution to that is if you're short of cash, you print it. In other words, cash is within human control. Um, you know, classically speaking, you just go and literally print more money. I think in the digital age, you just create it on a computer. And it's interesting that over the last 30 years, in conventional economics, the obsession has been around this question of cash, how much cash to have in the economy, you know, too much, too little. But everyone agrees you've got the option to create more of it. So what happens if it's materials? Okay, so the classical theory is if you're short of materials, you go and import more of them. Or you go and exploit more of the earth. So it's sort of new frontier sort of idea. So you probably can see where I'm going, going to on this is nature is real it's, and it's independent of human activity. So unlike cash, where you can just go and print it, if nature isn't producing enough food because, let's say, of the climate crisis, then you can't go to nature and get it to produce more food. So the prediction is, is what happened in Greece is going to happen with many countries across the world over the next 10 years because they're going to run out of food. And if you've got no food, that's going to disrupt your labour supply, it's going to disrupt materials. Um, obviously, that could be because of water, it could be because of drought, sea level rise, natural disasters, in inverted commas. And there's nothing that the system is going to be able to do, at least in the short term, because um, you can't print food. Okay, so the people at The Economist then are making two fundamental all-system errors. The first error is that by massive specialisation in food production, um, they are going to contribute towards massive famine. Their ideology, their way of looking at things is actually going to make the coming famines worse. Secondly, they're failing to understand that over-specialisation in other areas of production is going to make the collapse even worse as well because there's so much interdependency in the system as opposed to resilience. And so they're a little bit like, well, they're not a little bit, they're very much like the lawyer who, or the judge who is trying to follow the law as well as he can because he's thinking that the law is the system. And like the journalist who's trying to ask better questions at COP and, and hold people to account, um, what The Economist is doing is 
trying as best as they can to maintain and increase production and that very activity makes the coming collapse even worse. And this trajectory has happened over and over again in history, except this time, obviously, it's global and potentially terminal. In the past, when this dynamic has happened, where reformists have been incapable of seeing outside the box, then there's been a big contestation, a big area of disruption within a particular time and place, a particular country, a particular time in history. What's happening now is it's global. And that's why we're looking at the complete collapse of the system. And we know as this system, as this trajectory gets worse, the irrationality of rational approaches becomes even more embarrassing. <laughs> so, for instance, I think I mentioned this in another, other, uh, another uh, video, but just to remind ourselves, it, this situation in 2002 with the uh, dot-com bust, people knew it was coming. So people get into a situation where they know this famine is coming, their system it collapse is coming. They knew that this collapse was going to come with the stock, the stock market collapse in 2002, but no one sold their stocks um, because they'd lose their job. They wanted to maintain this farcical situation because what they knew was um, when the collapse comes of the stock market, no one will lose their jobs because everyone will be in the same boat, which has a certain rationality about it. But of course, in this situation, it's even worse because let's say there's a guy who works at The Economist reading this, uh, watching this video. If that person causes a fuss and sort of presents this to the editor of The Economist, they will get sacked. So there's a massive pressure to stay within the system. But at the point of collapse, it's not like everyone will maintain their jobs. It will be everyone won't have a job at a minimum because we'll have the collapse of the whole system. The stock market won't rise again. So it's even more irrational to maintain this reformist orientation in 2023. And again, just to emphasize this again, I'm not arguing that in these three videos that reformism in and of itself is irrational. What I'm saying is it's irrational in the context of a structurally revolutionary situation. And what is required is leadership or at least people to exit people to leave the economist magazine you know people judges to stop being judges journalists to get sacked and those people to join a revolutionary space so that when this revolutionary episode which is inevitable happens then there's already a social um, a social formation 
of people who are going to create a pro-social outcome to this revolutionary period rather than a fascistic one. And that's what Designing the Revolution podcast is all about. And there's about, going to be about 40 podcasts. <laughs> so check out the link if you're watching this on video. And thank you very much for listening to me. Thanks.